one of my proudest uh, moments is to work really hard on changing, changing that person and who you are and the way you teach. And you know, I'm proud to say I'm not like that anymore, and I haven't been for a number of years. And see what makes your staff tick and how to get the, the most out of them has been such a such a huge change. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Transformation. It's one of the key features of careers in hospitality. How the vision of how you see your career can change with the influences of different kitchens and the lessons learnt too. How different are chefs to the budding young cooks who first pulled on the apron? Clinton Park is the head chef of the Bridge Hotel in Werribee, Victoria. Clinton, how are you going? I'm good, thanks, Huck. How about yourself? I'm good. Uh, it's good to have you on the show. You've had a turbulent year like everyone, but um, you've moved states, you've closed businesses, you've changed careers, you've come back into hospitality. It's been a pretty pretty, pretty crazy ride. Yeah, look, it's been a roller coaster to say the least. It's, you know, pretty exhausting, but I'm here, I'm... I'm- I'm happy and yeah, life's pretty good. So, you know, you know pressure makes diamonds, I guess they say. <laughs> well, you opened the Harlequin in Hobart not that long ago. It was still quite a young business, but you, you ended up closing that. Could you tell us about the challenges of, of, of bringing, bringing that to its end, but also, you know, tell us a bit about it and what you created there. Yeah, look, to, to be honest, it, it's actually still trading. Um, the guys I was in partnership with, decided to keep it going. Um, I chose to get out of it. I didn't, I mean, for a number of reasons, um, COVID being probably the, the biggest one really. Um, but yeah, so Harlequin was, I guess, essentially a pub and the focus was cooking with fire um, and, you know, quite heavily meat focused. Um, yeah, so we built we built a lot of the, like all the furniture ourselves. We did a lot of landscaping, like, we ripped up part of a car park and laid 650 square meters of lawn ourselves. Um, yeah, look, it was a pretty monster feat. I think it took us a good 12, 12 to probably 16 months worth of manual labor between three of us to sort of get it to where it was. Um, I mean, painting all the walls, the ceilings, building every table and chair out of um, like real, we repurposed all the furniture was, that was there. It was all Italian blackwood. So we cut it all up into different shapes and rebuilt everything ourselves from scratch. So a lot of hard work. There's a lot of blood, sweat and, and tears that literally went into that. And the, the building historically is quite significant too. Yeah, look, it's a, it is a weird one. It's in this weird old castle um, in Lena Valley, which is just north of Hobart CBD. Um, yeah, so it started out as a as a shed to build and service uh, fuel bowsers or petrol pumps, um, then transitioned into um, a doll's house or a doll museum, sorry, um, where the, the new owner had bought it and decided that this shed, what this shed really needs is a few turrets out the front and to look a lot more like a castle than a shed. So um, this, I forget the gentleman's name, but he did that. Um, and then it changed hands again and um, the guy who then bought it decided, well, we better continue this castle vibe going and finished off the rest of the building and um, put turrets across, on either side of the crossing of the river so it looks like it's got a little moat and 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit strange. It's a bit um, bit wacky, but yeah. Then we we took it took it on. Um, most recently, before we we had it, it was actually a Yumcha restaurant. <laughs> yes, bit of, bit of history there. Well, given that you put so much of yourself into that, was it hard to let go of it? Look, it, it was. Um, I found it pretty difficult. It was a really tough decision to to get out of it. Um, I think part of part of what made that easier um, was the fact that um, you know, as all business relationships go, they they're not always they're not always set to win and or, or set for success, and they're not always going to be the best partnership. Um, the three of us got along really well, and then obviously opening a, a restaurant's quite difficult and stressful. And I think along the way, there were a few decisions made from both sides, which kind of impacted that. And so that, that relationship wasn't actually going as well as I would have hoped. Um, and then COVID happened and there was the decision that had to be made with, um, you know, the financial commitment and responsibility that comes with owning that venue and going to unprecedented times and, you know, com- the complete unknown of COVID and what that was actually going to mean and represent how long was it going to go for? What was going to happen? Did we try and go on? And then this is, you know, may have gone on for a lot longer as far as lockdowns and isolations and that are concerned. We're quite fortunate, but there was no foresight to, or any way to predict the outcome. Um, and yeah, so I had a chat with, um, well, my now wife, my partner at the time, and we we spoke about it and thought that it was for the best to, to sort of get out of it because, I, yeah, we just didn't know what was going to happen and, um, you know, to try and avoid a serious amount of debt or get, you know, putting ourselves in a lot of a worse, a lot worse position um, in the future. And look, I, you know, shed a few tears, had a little bit of a cry about it and had a slight existential crisis about, you know, everything I've worked so hard for over these years and the thing I always wanted to do, I'd finally done and now it's gone. Well, uh, we can talk about uh, your time in uh, Tasmania because you spent quite a few years at, at various venues, um, but you, you ended up going back to Melbourne in the last year, back to Victoria. Um, what was it like moving uh, states during the, the last year and, and what drove that decision? Um, well, M- Melbourne's home. I mean, I, I grew up from, well, I grew up I'd, from 16 onwards. I've lived here and, and worked here. Um, and so like my, my wife had moved to Tasmania, um, after, you know, after we'd been together for a little while and we were doing the interstate thing. Um, again, it was all, it's all quite, quite lucky the way that all worked out. She'd moved down, um, the beginning of last year, um, in February for us to, to set up our lives in Tassie. And she's, she's a nurse. Um, she, you know, works at St. Vincent's up here and she had before she moved and she'd come down and was going to be working at the Royal and I had the restaurant and we were like, okay, cool. This is, this is going to be good. We're going to set ourselves up and, you know, we love the Tassie lifestyle. We love the food. We love the nature and how close you are to everything. And we wanted to set ourselves up there. And so she'd made that big move. And then like, what was it? Probably like within the first month, COVID started to, really hit and you know I think it was March last year I we made that decision for me to get out of the, the restaurant um, and then I was unemployed for a little bit she was moved down to work in the hospital and then all that was happening was swabbing she was 
set, she helped set up and is quite fundamental in the establishment of the COVID testing centre in Hobart and how that moved from in um, in one of the re- repatriation centres to a complete big outdoor drive-through thing. And yeah, I think all of that plus then, you know, she moved down and the idea was we can come back and see the family and friends and I always made constant trips to and f- to and fro. Um, and then it was kind of that sort of sense of double isolation for us. Not only if we were in Victoria, we sure we wouldn't be able to see anyone because we'd be locked down, but then we were locked down in Tasmania with a body of water surrounding us. You couldn't go anywhere. I wasn't working. She was standing outside in winter as well, swabbing people in, in, in the near snow with a jacket on and freezing. And yeah, like they worked really hard and it was just, it all sort of just really took a toll. And um, yeah, it was, it was a bit crazy. And then obviously there's a decision to move back was just kind of one where, again, we'd spoken about it a lot. And we're like, well, I wasn't working in hospitality for most of last year. I ended up working at Telstra because, you know, it paid me money and, I'm very grateful that I could get full-time employment last year. Um, but then looking to try and get back into the kitchen, um, again, very limited down there, only more so because of COVID and people holding on to employees and, or not taking on anyone because no one knew what was going to happen. And, um, you know, we looked, we just spoke about it. And we're like, well, maybe we should move home. You know, our family's all here. Our friends are here. Our close support networks are here. There's so many more job opportunities in Melbourne for me and um, Ace could always go back to St. Vincent's, which she's done and yeah. Well, as you mentioned, you've uh, called Melbourne home since you were 16. Uh, Tell us about when you first got interested in food and and that sort of what drew you to a career in, in hospitality. Oh, far out. Well, it's it's, it's far from the, the classic story of, oh, I spent all my time with mum in the kitchen and mum or dad was a fabulous cook. And, you know, I just, I was just so lucky that I got to learn from them and it was amazing. Like it's pretty much the complete opposite. Like my, my childhood was a bit, a bit of a tough one. Um, I like my biological mother passed away when I was born and my grandparents took myself and my sister in, which was in some parts very lucky and in other parts led to more uh, med to led to more trauma um we won't need to go too far into all of that but it was if you picture a pretty rough bad childhood or upbringing that was kind of kind of where i was um and home wasn't a nice place to be um and then so i, was, I basically hit my teenage years and it I, I was kind of a bit lost as what to do. I, I did army cadets and everything like that when I was a kid. And I think that sense of organization, um, that structure, that strong leadership and everything that was associated with that for me drew me in. And then it would come time to um, look at what was a work experience in high school. And I was like, oh, I have no fucking clue what I want to do. Um, like maybe I'll join the army because of this. And someone had just said to me, oh, why don't you, why don't you be a chef? Or why don't you try cooking? And I was like, I mean, I've never thought about it. Like it never really, never really crossed my mind. Um, and they're like, well, um, this, so this is over in Esperance in Western Australia. Um, so right on the southeast coast of WA, not close to much, um, except beautiful beaches and very white sand. Um, but, 
um, there was a place there called the Taylor Street Tea Rooms, which was like the place in town where everyone would go. So I got in touch with them and I was like, look, can, you know, can I do work experience? And they're like, yep, absolutely. And um, so I, I went and I'd, I got in and it just fucking blew me away. I was just like, this is, what is this? What is this world that I've just stepped foot into? It's loud, it's noisy, there's fire everywhere, there's people just, you know, cutting shit fast <laughs> and what the hell, like, it was just like, what, what is going on? But I just, I just fell in love with it pretty much instantly and um, very, very, also strangely enough, one of my best friends to this day, who's also a chef, Daniel Dobra, or Dobbers as he's affectionately known. Um, so we went to high school together, I met him, on my pretty sure my first day of um of my work placement because he also worked there and yeah what's that 17 or something years ago now we're still best mates we call each other family um and we're both chefs and doing all right well uh since then you've worked at some pretty amazing uh venues uh in melbourne and tasmania what's been the real key uh, kitchens and moments for you that have uh, triggered your career? Um, I think there's, there's a few along the way. Um, going from, you know, very humble beginnings at the Taylor Street Tea Rooms where there was a toasted sandwich section and poached eggs were done in a poaching tray in a big pot and things like that, um, to move to the decision to move to Melbourne when I was 16, I left high school and, you know, cooking gave me a way out and a way to get out, get away from my what was home and all that trouble and I was like how can I get further away I need to move somewhere that does has some really great restaurants and it was Sydney or Melbourne I, I chose Melbourne I moved over here and got in touch with some people there was a restaurant that then opened up in South Yarra called Le Bouchardie Parisienne um, Dan Swalk was the head chef and a, a gentleman called Philippe O'Bron was the owner slash exec chef I guess um, very French very very French um, and he was, but, um, very hard to work for very, very classic, very militant, but I loved it. That was a very big defining moment for me at one point or at the beginning where I started my apprenticeship and it again, completely shifted what food was for me and what showed me what food could be. And, um, just the crazy flavors and combinations of different ingredients and, making all your stocks from scratch, making sausages, cutting up meat, like butchery, like butchery, um, you know, terrines and just really classic technique that I've grown to love over the years and, and respect so much. But I guess the, you know, out of the, out of the frying pan into the fire, whatever it's called, it's just went from one place and then joined, started there. And it was just like, I thought I knew or had an idea of food and I didn't. So I think that was, that was probably number one. Um, and then over the years, um, I worked for Ricardo Mimeso. I worked at um, SOS, which, which was a pescatarian restaurant um, in the city that Paul Mathis had. So he was the chef there. Um, I went there in my second year. And that was, again, that was a pretty big momentum shift for me from going from pretty classic um, French cuisine, stepping into... Um, not only Italian, but also pescatarian. It was like, there's no meat in the kitchen. What's going on? Um, you know, not even for staff tea. It was like a strict ban on it. But learning from this chef who, 
again was incredibly hard to work for. It was, it was an absolute hard bastard. But again, I love, I loved it. It's something that just drove me to keep going. Is I just wanted to work for these people and and learn what they had to offer. Um, that was a pretty big one as well. Just sort of learning about you know hand rolling pasta and cleaning so much fucking fish. Um, but as you know, it's it's something I did as a, was a second year apprentice where I can could confidently say I can I can definitely clean a fish or two. Um, and then fast forward a few years, um, you know, I was kind of hit this point where I was in my twenties and I didn't want to be working in really long hours in a restaurant anymore till late. And you know, I kind of not lost that love or desire to work in fine dining, but I just wanted to see what else there was and then I went and worked at St. Ali in uh, South Melbourne again that was a pretty pretty key player in in my professional growth and um, myself as a chef learning to um, run a massive kitchen team and then um, so it was I was the sous chef and Andy Gale was the exec chef and we didn't really have a head chef for a little bit um, at, at at South and then there was St. Ali North and then there was a pop-up in the city so I was involved with sort of floating between all three venues and having to learn how to, you know, manage um, a large number of staff and very busy, like very busy venue and high turnover. And um, yeah, it was just, that, that was also pretty, pretty key. And I think one of the biggest things that I think brought all this back together for me was um, one of my good friends, Chris Terlicker has Blue Bonnet Barbecue and um, I mean, we met through, as you, most of us do, just through the industry and became good, good friends. And I mean, I'd lived pretty close to Blue Bonnet and been in a lot of times. And he just started calling me up sometimes being like, Grash, Grash, I'm in the shit. Uh, you able to, you able to maybe, um, uh, yeah, like, uh, can you come give me a hand? <laughs> um, and so sure enough, it'd be a random night of the week and I'd be literally sitting down to do something and I'd give the phone to go off and like, Terlica, I'm like, yeah, mate, how you going? And he'd m- mumble on, I'd be like, what, do you need me there right now? And he'd be like, yeah, I'm like, all right, see you in a minute. Um, and sort of going over and completely like oblivious to exactly what's involved with American barbecue and to do it well, I'd gone over and just rocked, rocked up and, you know, be like, all right, mate, what do you fucking need me to do? And I think learning learning that and I guess a bit more of the time and the patience and the understanding of the fire, cooking with a live fuel and the way you, you can only control it to an extent, but you can't completely control it and learning how to work with that and, you know, you can't just t- twist the knob a little bit to turn it up or down. It's There's a whole process to it. I think that really brought together a lot of my loves of um, butchery, meat in general, and cooking with an open flame or, you know, methods around cooking with um, fire and smoke. So, yeah, I think those were the, probably the main key players. Prior to opening Harlequin, you uh, spent time at Pilgrim in uh, Tasmania, but also the agrarian kitchen, which is uh, renowned across Australia. Uh, what was it like having that connection to the, uh, the garden and the local growers and working in the, the, the agrarian? The agrarian was a pretty magical um, experience. Um, it's it's what took me to Tasmania. It's something that happened again pretty pretty randomly, I guess. Um, I'd, I'd followed um, 
what the you know what Rod and Severin do at the Agrarian. I'd had their book and everything, and I thought this was pretty amazing. And I was like, if only they opened up a restaurant. You know, that whole the whole approach and ethos that they follow is is something I think we can all um, aspire to if we you know if we have the resource and the ability. Um, but even just being a bit more conscious. And I was in Tasmania on a holiday. I was in Franklin and um, a lady I used to work with at St. Ali, funny enough, was, was there working on the floor. And I was like, hey, mate, what's going on? And, you know, we had a quick chat and she's like, well, my partner's actually, um, you know, going to be the head chef at the Agrarian Kitchens restaurant. I was like, what? They're opening a restaurant? And she's like, yeah, um, she'll be here in a minute <laughs> if you want to have a chat. And I was like, yeah, no worries. So I ended up having a having a glass of wine and a chat with Ali, um, who ended up being the head chef at the agrarian and i was like look here's my email um if you you know if that's happening or maybe let me know because I'd, I'd love to be there and she sent me an email i sent through my resume um, i flew down for an interview um for 24 hours and like went out checked out the whole agrarian met rod and severine and the kids like saw that went and saw the site um and then I, you know, went back to Hobart and I went and ate at Fico when they first, like, not long after that opened. It was pretty fantastic. One of my favourite restaurants in Australia. Um, and flew back to Melbourne and I'd got the job and so I gave my notice and pretty sure within a month I'd, I was in the car and I was on the boat. Well, you, you're back in Melbourne now um, at the Bridge Hotel in Werribee. T- tell us about uh, what you're doing there and what your cooking style is like. So at the bridge, we're, it's like a pretty large pub. I think we've got capacity around 300, so it's, it's a monster. Um, what, what we're doing there is we're trying to offer, like I guess, high-quality pub food, not in the sense of like a gastro pub where we're trying to be leaning to fine dining or anything like that. We just want to do really approachable but flavorful um, pub food. In, it's in it's in volumes as well, like large volume as well. So it's not like you can spend too much time on every tiny element of the dish, but we want every component that's there to serve a purpose, have the right flavour, and you know make sense. Can you give us a, a couple of examples of the dishes that you have on the menu that kind of exemplify how you straddle the sort of world of the restaurants that you've worked in and sort of. Um, bring that to the pub environment? Um, well, I guess one dish that's, that sort of sits in my mind is we just put a beetroot risotto on um, with this, as the seasons have all changed and everything like that. And that kind of takes me back to my time at SOS. Um, it was a dish that we sort of like a bit of a, close to a dish we used to do there. We, we did a beetroot risotto and just thought of that. And again, using that, that same technique and that approach to you know, doing a good risotto, not just a bowl of wet rice. <laughs> um, and, you know, getting, being able to produce that again in a high volume uh, establishment that's again approachable for the clientele. Um, and what else are we doing? We're doing a, um, doing a really nice braised lamb shoulder that's served with essentially a semolina and gnocchi. Um, so we pan fry the semolina and gnocchi. We've got this you know this lovely, lovely braised lamb shoulder. It's, again, it's got that classic component of having you know, you know, your nice brumoire of your veg through it folded through right at the end. So you've got these lovely colours of these carrots coming out, and this this love, this beautiful, rich 
sauce that just coats your mouth and then you can mop it up with these semolina gnocchi. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you moved to Melbourne uh, when you were 16 and the industry really opened your eyes to opportunity and, and something quite different. How, how different are you to um, the 16-year-old back then and the way that you see food and, and cook? Chalk and cheese, I reckon. Um, yeah, I mean, from when I first moved to Melbourne, you know, I was essentially this little bogan kid from the middle of nowhere on the on the coast um, who thought the epitome of cuisine was the Taylor Street Tea Rooms with the bloody jetty out the front where people would go and fish. Um, you know, that was food to me or kind of what is baked beans and toast, which still is the epitome of cuisine, if you ask me. But, um, yeah, just completely different person um i'm very grateful and thankful for all my time i've been able to spend in different restaurants as, as a patron and as a chef um gotten to eat some amazing food and what it's really i guess the biggest thing is learning about just tasting everything trying everything don't be scared to try something different and eat a different cuisine or, or try different food um you know and you learn to love a lot like back then i would barely eat anything you know, I'd turn my nose up at most 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 things you'd ever put on a plate in front of me. I was really fussy. And now someone's like, you want some lamb sprains? I'd be like, please, that would be fucking great. Like, you, you got you got some grabeach or something to go with it? Like, just let me have it. Or, yeah, um, just completely different. Um, you know, and as well, as a chef, you know, you start out, you work in these places and the industry's changed a lot, which I'm also grateful for because back in the day, you know, it was... It's like screaming, yelling, carrying on, dodging pans, um, all the abuse, all the underpayment, the long hours and the bullying and all of that. And, you know, you sort of start to become a bit of a product of your environment through coming up in that and has to hit a point in your life where you decide to change. And, you know, you're a bit, I'm not a, like, I'm not ashamed to say it, but I'm not proud of how, of how I was back then when I was, you know, you get that sort of bravado about you and want to be that person. And I think one of my proudest uh, moments is to really step back and assess that and work really hard on changing, changing that person and who you are and the way you teach. And, you know, I'm proud to say I'm not like that anymore and I haven't been for a number of years. And um, I'm finding to actually really see what, see what makes your staff tick and how to get the, the most out of them has been such a, such a huge change. You mentioned a really troubled childhood that you had growing up and you also referred to yourself as Gresh just a few moments ago. You haven't always been Clinton Park. Um, you changed your name when you got married to your wife's name. Tell, tell us about that decision and, and why, why you did that. Well, I mean, yeah, so a lot of people call me Gresh. Like my wife calls me Gresham. My, surname, my, my, my original surname was Gresham um, or my maiden name, I think that's what it's called, right? Um, so my yeah my maiden surname was Gresham. That's the, that was how I grew up, and everyone you know everyone's just called me Gresh for a decade and a half or something like that. But um, yeah, look, my my childhood wasn't great, and I don't really well, I do now, but I, up until you know my wife and and our family, I never really had a much family. Like I you know kind of got got out of there, got away, and it was kind of just me for years and years and years. And, um, you know, came to, we were getting married. It came time to sort of talk about these things and 
you know, there's all that, there's always that age old tradition of, well, you know, um, the woman takes a man's name and, you know, I see myself as a feminist. We are a bit of a feminist household and I don't think that it's anyone's right or need to, to choose that for anyone else or it, I didn't feel like my wife had to do anything. Um, and you know, she'd, she'd float that ear. She's like, well, I'm not really keen on taking your surname because of what that sort of represents for you. And, you know, trauma and, and hardship and like it was quite poignant. And so I thought about it a lot and I was like, you know, hopefully we can have kids. And when we, when we do, if we do, and if we can, but when we do, um, what, what am I passing on to them? And I kind of looked at my surname and I was like, well, it's never done anything for me. It's, I think about it. I'm like, that's not really like this. It doesn't make me think of love and happiness and a welcoming home and good times. It makes me think of quite the opposite. And, um, you know, the parks, my, my family, my, my beautiful wife, she is the, the greatest thing to ever happen to me in the whole history of my life besides walking into a kitchen. It's the, they're the two most constant things I've ever had. Um, and I was like, well, your family, her family is the opposite of everything I had. It's they're loving, they're welcoming. They welcome me with open arms since the first day I ever met them. And they love me. I love them, their family. And so I decided that, you know, I, I asked if it was okay if I took, took her name and um, she's like, I'd love that. And her father then called me and, you know, welcome me. He's like, Grash, look, you've been family since day one. I don't need to welcome you really, but welcome to the family. I'd be so honored if you took, you know, if you took the family name and he's like, that would be amazing. Make sure you let us know when it's changed so we can have a bottle of champagne to celebrate. And yeah, so look, it was a, it wasn't a decision I, I took lightly or made lightly, but it was a decision that a lot of, um, it was, it was very easy at the end of the day. You've had a, an incredible ability to adapt and change from difficult circumstances and um, really make a, an impression with your career as well and, and change and adapt for a better life. What, what sort of advice would you give to people that are looking for change after the trauma of the last year and a half? Um, like, although it may seem scary, don't be too scared to try. Um, you, if you... Like, I know it's probably quite cliche, but you never know unless you give it a go. If you don't put yourself out there and and really try for something, you, you're either, well, you're never going to succeed because you've failed because you haven't even started. But, and, you know, you haven't, you have to really attempt it or if you want a career change, if you, if you want to move somewhere else, if you want to go for this different job and in a different kitchen or try a different cuisine or anything, just, just go out and do it. The worst that can happen is it, you know, you fail at it or it doesn't work out how you want. And we're all still alive, which we're lucky for, you know, you still got your life. You still got your livelihood. You can still try something else. Well, you're now back in Victoria and, um, with your family and, uh, running a really big successful, uh, hotel. What, what are you loving about the role that you have now and the life that you're living in, in Victoria? Um, the team, I think the team that we've got, are, they're, they're, they're all such great people. They've all come from different walks of life as, you know, most, most, most of us do in the kitchen. But the team we've got, they're great. They're all such hard workers. Everyone always wants to learn and push themselves and grow. 
but everyone also just gets along and respects each other and you can go to work and enjoy yourself every day um but you know when then when the going gets tough and everyone's got to sort of dig their heels in a bit and push the fuck on they're all right there doing it so like it's massive credit to all of them for for how we operate daily as a venue because we couldn't do it without them no way um I love the food we're cooking. I think it's it's been an interesting one, especially being in Werribee. Um, the other three venues in the group are all inner city, so um, their offering a bit is a bit is a bit more tailored to their surroundings. And you know, Mark Elon's in Fitzroy and um, Union House, and oh gosh, the other one. Um, why do I always forget? There's a complete mental blank there. Um, but you know they're all you know what Fitzroy, Richmond, and South Yarra are called like, and so their their clientele is very different to us out here. We're almost regional, um, and so you know what we what we're doing is tailored to suit them a bit more and um, finding that balance. I think the, probably the, the more, most fun comes out of finding the where the, where we draw the line with how much we can push what we're doing to be a little bit more creative or a little bit different to what they would normally expect, but then I'll still go for it. Um, and then the lifestyle side of things, it's it's nice to be able to hop in the car and, you know, within an hour, see my mother and father-in-law. Like, they live up at Mount Macedon, so it's pretty close to us. Um, or my sister or brother-in-law or, or, you know, my nieces and nephews. Um, and even just friends, like, you know, going to, the, going to a game of the footy. Like, I hadn't gotten to go to a game at the G in a while, and I went to a game with my brother-in-law the other week when Melbourne played Richmond and just just being able to, you know, drive in, park up, walk into the MCG, watch a game of footy, have a beer and drive home and go to bed. <laughs> like, I think that's that's pretty awesome. Well, uh, it's been awesome having you on Deep in the Weeds, Clinton. We've loved hearing your story and I'm very much looking forward to hearing uh, what goes on with the Bridge Hotel moving forward. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Wonderful, mate. Thanks for having me. Hope you have a great day. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.